0: And I would invite you to take a copy of the Bible from someplace and turn to the book of Galatians. Paul's letter to the Galatians, chapter 3. If you're using a house Bible, it is page 973 in that black Bible in the pew there in the chair. Galatians 3. When I was young, we had a children's class, sort of similar to what we have here, um, and I would go off and out to that children's class, and one of the things that we would do in that children's class is to sing some songs uh, before a time around the Word, and uh, one of the songs that we would sing is a song called Father Abraham. I don't know if you've ever heard that song or not, but when I was a little junior age boy, that was like one of my favorite songs to sing in the children's class. And it went like this. Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. I could sing it for you. I am one of them, and so are you. So let's all praise the Lord. So you know it. All right. So I'm not the only one that grew up with that. And then, and then, We got to every junior boy's favorite part of the song because that's where you got to start swinging your arms, right? Right arm, Father Abraham had many sons, and we'd go through that whole thing and then right arm, left arm, Father Abraham, and then right foot and left foot. And then we'd turn around and then we'd sit down. And the hope was that by the time you got to the end of the song, the junior boys would be so tired out, they'd actually listen to the, to the lesson for, you know, 15 or 20 minutes. Uh, I think the, the main reason that we enjoyed it was because it was a good opportunity to sort of whack your neighbor, you know, that was nearby when you're doing the right arms and the left arm. It was sort of a silly little song. But I do remember this, though. One day, our pastor at the time decided to put a stop to the song. And it wasn't because the boys were going home black and blue. Uh, you know, his his declaration from the pulpit was he said, you know, folks, the truth is we're not sons of Abraham. That's the Jewish people. God has a separate plan for them. And so we stopped singing the song in Children's Church. Um, and of course, it was in many ways a very different kind of church, uh, than, than what we are here. But in fact, the New Testament does teach in the words of verse 7 of this text that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham, right? Or, Paul continuing on with his argument. He really unfolds it throughout the entirety of this chapter. And if you look down at verse 29 of chapter 3, he concludes his argument this way. If you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring. Heirs according to the promise. That is the promise that God made to Abraham. And so I guess I want to preach to you this morning on the title, Father Abraham Had Many Sons but I won't make you do the song, all right? I know. Even the false teachers that plagued the Galatians understood that there was a corporate or a communal element to being justified before God as well as a personal element. We tend to think, I think most of us do, we tend to think primarily or perhaps even exclusively in terms of the personal element of our personal salvation. But the Galatians rightly acknowledge that there are many passages in which God promises to redeem His people, plural or corporately speaking. He calls not just individuals, but He calls a nation to himself. He calls a family. He shepherds a flock. The elect are not simply viewed as individuals whom God saves, although they are chosen individually, Romans chapter 9, but they are also a chosen people. God promises to vindicate and to justify a people in the face of all who would harass them. There is a corporate solidarity to God's saving plan, in other words. Now, under the types and the shadows of the Old Testament, that corporate solidarity was manifest in their connection to Abraham. And the issue at stake in terms of justification, in terms of being vindicated before God, acceptable in His sight, pronounced righteous in the sight of God. The issue at stake was the identity of Abraham's children. Who are those people who are justified, who are vindicated by God, that are God's flock, God's people, God's family, God's nation, God's chosen ones? And the false teachers had an answer for that. Right? Their answer was, I'll tell you who are who are the people of God. We'll tell you who are the sons of Abraham. Only those who are circumcised. That's who. Only those who keep God's law. Only those who obey Moses and all of his commands. Uh, Apparently, Philip Riken, who is the president of Wheaton College, learned the same little silly children's song that I learned and many of you apparently learned. Uh, growing up, because he summarized the false teacher's view this way. Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. I am one of them, and you are not. So let's all get together for a little procedure we like to call circumcision. That was the view of the false teachers. Circumcision and the keeping of the law was essential for salvation. Paul, Paul, on the other hand, in this letter to the Galatian churches, he insists that it is believers in Jesus who alone are Abraham's children, and inheritors of the blessings that God promised to Abraham. And so we'll look at our text beginning in Galatians chapter six, I'm excuse me, chapter three, verse six. Uh we'll read all the way down through 14, although our text this morning specifically is only going to be verses 6 through 9. Galatians 3, if you'll follow along, this will be very helpful to you, verse 6. It's the end of a paragraph. Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, and this is kind of the end of a sentence, but it's sort of really a new subject in a way. So we're sort of jumping in the middle of something here. But he's going to develop this idea that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. He says, verse 7, here's his conclusion. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached... The gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed, along with Abraham, the man of faith. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse, as it, for it is written, cursed by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised Holy Spirit, the promised Spirit, through faith. Amen. Now, if you'll notice, as I pointed out earlier, the beginning words of verse 6, it becomes obvious that we're jumping into the middle of Paul's larger argument. And I think you could sort of summarize his main argument in this letter that he wrote to these ancient churches. You could summarize Paul's main argument in the words of verse of chapter 2, verse 16, which you can look at in your text or up on the screen where he says this. This is his main contention. He says, We also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by what? By faith. By faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. That's his main contention. That's where this whole letter is going. Now, for the Galatians and for all of us who are tempted to fall into wrong thinking about the gospel, Paul makes two main arguments in chapter 3 for his contention that were justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. In the first place, he makes an argument from Christian experience. This is chapter 3 verses 1 through 5, an argument from Christian experience. We looked at that last week in detail. This morning, we want to go on to his second argument, which is an argument from Scripture, from the Old Testament Scriptures. And this runs from chapter 3, verse 6, all the way through verse 14, and really beyond that into the rest of chapter 3 and into chapter 4. But if you look at this sort of paragraph or this section from verses 6 to 14, go ahead and take a look at it for a minute and look for quotation marks. If you have an ESV Bible, it'll have quotation marks. Some other Bibles will do quotations in different ways. But you'll see that there are six, six sets of quotation marks within these few short verses. Paul is making here a very densely, um, uh, formulated argument from the old testament scripture now last week as i said we looked at the argument from christian experience this morning we'll look at only the first part of this argument from scripture supporting the idea that we're justified by faith in christ and not by our own works in this section verses 3 to 6 i'm excuse me verses 6 to 9 which is our focus this morning Paul quotes two Old Testament texts, and you can see them there. And then he uses those texts to make two uh, distinct but interrelated arguments in support of his main thesis. And if you see the quotation marks in verse 6, there's one of the quotes. And then in verse 7, you'll see the word then, T-H-E-N. You might underline that. That's his conclusion or his the implication that is rooted in that Old Testament text. And then he does the same thing again in verses 8 and 9. There's a quotation in verse 8. And then in verse 9, you see the word then again, T-H-E-N, then, and there's his conclusion or the implication of that once again. So two arguments from the Old Testament in support of Paul's gospel, the good news that saves us before The Almighty God, that is, that we are justified, we are pronounced righteous in His sight, not by our own works, not by conformity to His law, but ultimately by faith in Christ and in Christ alone. Both of his arguments from the Old Testament center on the patriarch Abraham, the father of God's people. Now, most of you are very familiar with Abraham. And even if you're not, I'm sure you've heard the name. Abraham is a very important character in biblical history. He was a Chaldean, uh, which is a branch of the ancient Mesopotamian peoples. He was, uh, along with them, a worshiper of idols until God called him to leave where he was living, to leave his family, his homeland, and to go and follow. The one true God of the universe, that God would give him a promised land of his own, uh, in which God would make him a mighty nation. God revealed himself to Abraham through a promise, primarily. That promise is found in Genesis chapter 12. This is the background for now what Paul is saying here to these Galatian churches. In Genesis chapter 12, God makes to Abraham this promise. In chapter 12, verse 2, I will make, he says to Abraham, I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will, so that you will be a blessing. And that promise is reinforced in Genesis chapter 15 and verse 5, which is central to Paul's argument here from the Old Testament about the gospel. In Genesis 15.5, God brought Abraham outside, and he said to Abraham, Look toward the heaven, and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said, So shall your offspring be. And then the very next verse in Genesis Is the one that Paul's quoting here in Galatians 3 verse, um, what is it? Verse 6. Abraham, quote, believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. God counted him righteous on this basis, in this moment. This is the point in scripture where God reveals the, the 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 basis of abraham's righteousness of his vindication and justification in the eyes of god the key question paul's getting at in understanding the gospel the key question is at what point was abraham first declared to be righteous and the answer is not while he was doing Anything. What was going on with Abraham when God declared him to be righteous? He wasn't performing any great act of obedience. He wasn't even circumcised yet. And this is cutting away at the argument of the false teachers. He was just, what, standing there, looking up, staring at the stars, and believing. Believing God, and in particular, believing God's promise. And on that basis, on the basis of his faith in God and God's promise, Abraham was declared by God righteous. And I want to tell you this morning, what Paul is arguing is that that is the only way for any of us to be justified before a righteous God. Some people think about their religious ritual, uh, their baptism, their confirmation, their joining a church. They look to that for hope that that will make them right before God. That God will vindicate them on that basis. Is that what Paul's saying here? What was a what what? Ritual was Abraham performing. What religious thing was he doing? He was doing nothing. He's vindicated on the basis of his faith alone. Some people look to their pattern of moral behavior. That they are a kind person. That they're trying to follow in the steps of Jesus. Treating their neighbor well. Giving to the poor. But none of these, friends, listen to me, None of these is the basis upon which God declares a man to be righteous; None of these is the ultimate basis. Abraham believed God, God was making him a promise, and Abraham accepted that promise, rested on it, and rested in the the God who was behind that promise, and it was on that basis that Abraham was counted righteous in the sight of God What about you Is it true for you Is that have you come to a place like like Abraham of belief in God and God's promise as your only hope and your only foundation to be vindicated and justified before God in his judgment the promise that God will save all who come to Him through His Son, Jesus Christ. Resting in that promise, hoping in the God who made that promise, putting all of your, uh, faith in that as your, the ground of your salvation. That is what gives someone security and, and hope in the eyes of, before the eyes of God and the judgment of God. This is not To say, of course, that there's no value at all in any of those religious rituals or any of our moral acts of obedience to God. But there is only value in those acts as they spring from faith in God and in His salvation. They are the fruit, the outgrowth of justifying faith not the cause themselves of salvation, but the fruit of faith that is the only basis upon which someone is justified before God. And there is, friends, a massively significant ramification to this doctrine. This doctrine of justification by faith alone. A hugely significant ramification since Since faith is not doing anything, but looking to God who promises to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves, then God and God alone gets all the glory, all the credit, and all the merit for our salvation. Amen? That's the huge ramification, biblically speaking. Paul fleshes this out in the book of Romans when he takes the same kind of arguments that he is making here in Galatians and just enlarges them. And he says this in Romans chapter four, still making the case from Abraham. Romans four, one, if you want to look it up. What then, he says, shall we say was gained by Abraham? our forefather according to the flesh. Paul was a Jew descended from Abraham. What shall we say that was gained by Abraham? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to what? That's it. If he was justified by his works, by his obedience, by his conformity, then he has something to boast about, but not before God for what does the Scripture say? And you can see he's using the same kind of argument. He goes to the same passage in Genesis 15. Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, he's going to enlarge. He says, to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but his due. We, none of us would be so foolish as to go into the boss and say, that was so kind of you to just give me my paycheck last week. I can't believe you did that. You don't have to do that from now on. I'm just, I'm just happy to be here, right? I don't know. I don't think anybody would do that. We would say, no, that's what I deserve. I put in a hard week of work. This is my due recompense, right? Now, Paul is arguing here that if someone works, to be justified in the eyes of God, then his wages aren't a gift, but it's what he's due. And to the one, but, he says, verse 5, and to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies, in fact, the one who even justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. And I want to tell you that every religious, System that mixes in human works and human activity as the basis for justification before God ends up becoming some form of a system of merit, some form of a system of merit. and of course one of the one of the most um, significant of this sort of um, perverted or convoluted gospel is the Roman Catholic Church. And I say that with all love to the Roman Catholic people, but it is hard to deny that a person in that kind of system earns that he deserves his standing before God. That he gets what he is due. That he is receiving his wages. But the great end goal of God's salvation, the great end goal is his own glory and the glory of his beloved Son. God's plan of salvation is intentionally designed so that the only one who is exalted as worthy and meritorious and deserving is Jesus Christ. He is the one in whom the Father delights. He is the one whose obedience was perfect before His Father. He is the one whose sacrifice was willing and obedient to God when He laid down His life for sinners on the cross. It is Christ's glory that God is absolutely jealous for. And no other way of salvation gives Christ the glory than salvation and justification by faith alone in Christ alone. This is the only way you can obtain your salvation before God. Salvation from His wrath and His judgment. Entrance into heaven. You must come to Him like a poor beggar receiving a free gift from the pure kindness of the giver and not like a rich man offering to purchase something you have nothing listen listen to me you have nothing to bring to god that he needs right nothing to bring to god that he needs his salvation is a gift it is a free unmerited gift of His own kindness, not by works. You have no works, no good deeds that are good enough to satisfy a holy, perfect God. But I have good news for you who consider that you are, in fact, ungodly. And that is that to the one who believes in Him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness in the sight of God. In verse 7 of our text, Paul is now going to draw out an important implication from this account of Abraham. You see it from the word then. Know then, that it is those of faith, those of faith, who are the sons of Abraham. Have you ever heard the saying, like father, like son, right? We've all heard that. I'm a lot like my father, my looks, some of my actions. You know, if you're ever a kid and you say, oh, I hope I never grow up to be like my father. And then you find as you get older, I'm growing up to be like my father. But, uh, there is a family resemblance, right? I told my father, I saw him this week, we were camping and I said, you know, Dad, I ask you all these questions because I know, you know, uh, looking at you, this is going to be me in a few years. So I just, I'm trying to get ready, get ahead of time. Children are like their father. And if you are children of Father Abraham, then you will have the faith Of Abraham. You can tell who are his children by who bears a likeness to him in the most important aspect of his entire life, and that is his faith in God and God's promise as the basis of his standing. Abraham would go on, of course, to have many physical descendants. We could call them his typological descendants. Children. And in chapter 4, Paul refers to them as children born according to the flesh. But the promise of God envisioned something more than just that something ultimate, and that is spiritual children. Those who were born through promise, not through the flesh. And I want to ask you what do you do with a promise? You don't obey a promise, what do you do with it? You you believe it or don't believe it. What really made someone a child of the promise then was not merely physical descent from Abraham, Paul's arguing, but spiritual birth. In John chapter 8, Jesus said something similar. Remember, he was um, speaking to Jews who were boasting of their um, lineage from Abraham, that they were part of God's chosen people. right? And here, remember, the question at issue is, who are part of God's chosen people? Who are they? Well, they were saying, hey, we descended from Abraham. We are God's chosen ones. But Jesus looked at them and said, if you were truly Abraham's children, you would believe in me because that's what Abraham did. Abraham believed in me. Those promises that God made to Abraham were pointing the way forward to the Lord Jesus Christ. And he was justified before God not by performing any ritual or obeying any command, but by believing the promise of God that God would do for him what he could not do for himself. Romans chapter 9, Paul makes a similar kind of argument. He says that not all who are, quote, offspring of Abraham, are really his children. And many, in fact, at sometimes in their history, most of the Jews proved not to be Abraham's true spiritual children. But there was always a remnant, a remnant by faith, a remnant by the grace of God, And Paul's big point is, his first really big point is this, that only believers are true sons of Abraham. Only believers are true sons of Abraham. That's his first big point here. Okay, And then in verses 8 and 9, he goes on to make a second related point. And his second point is that all believers are true sons of Abraham. All believers in Christ, and I'm talking about whether they physically descended from Abraham or not, are in fact sons of Abraham. So he's making two points. One, only believers are true sons of Abraham. And secondly, all believers are true sons of Abraham. And once again, to make this point, he marshals scripture in support. In verse eight, take a look again at his um, the the spirit inspired apostle who quotes the Old Testament so that we can learn. Right, God has given us all of the scriptures, Old and New Testament, to help us to come together and understand His plan of salvation. He says, verse eight, and the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the Gospel beforehand to Abraham. You say, brother, where can we find the Gospel in the Bible? Show me where I can find the Gospel. And we might point to 1 Corinthians 15. Or we might point to some other passage in the New Testament. But well, you know, we can go all the way back into the Old Testament Scriptures. And the Gospel was preached beforehand The gospel that salvation would come even to non-Jews, even to Gentile, even to the nations of the earth. How did that come? Well, when God gave the gospel to Abraham saying, and this is now a quotation from Genesis 12 and 18, in you shall all the nations be blessed. All the nations. In other words, God's plan from the very beginning was in fact the salvation of the Gentiles, the salvation of people from all nations of the earth. Gentiles, outsiders, uncircumcised people God would bring into His family. And one evidence of that was that in Genesis chapter 15, when God first declared Abraham to be righteous, Abraham himself was uncircumcised. Right? And God declared him to be righteous. In other words, Abraham was justified as a Gentile, so to speak, as one of those out there in the nations, the heathen. And yet God brought him to himself and declared him righteous for all to hear before he was circumcised, before he had. Uh, all of these commands and was obedient to God and going through these rituals. This is what Paul asserts in Romans chapter 4. And in verse 11 he says, now the purpose of that, God declaring him righteous before he was circumcised, the purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that the righteous... Uh, so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. God's blessing would not come then to just one family, but to all the nations of the earth. And God is still interested in in that today, that the gospel be proclaimed around the globe, that Christ's kingdom be a global one that men and women from every tribe and nation on the face of the earth would come into the kingdom of God's dear Son and be part of the family of God, the people of Abraham. That blessing that God promised to Abraham is none other than justification before a holy God being set free from God's judgment on those people as idolaters and sinners, God's blessing on the Gentiles, that He would justify them in spite of their sinfulness, in spite of their ungodliness. This is the God who declares righteous those who in themselves are ungodly on the basis of their faith in the One who was godly, namely Christ and Jesus and Christ Jesus alone. And He would bring those people, those outsiders, those Gentiles into the family of God. And that blessing that blessing would ultimately come through one single son of Abraham. Right? The blessing that God promised would ultimately come through a single descendant of Abraham, namely Jesus, the Messiah. Paul's going to make this point, we're going to see it as we go along here, in verse number 16 of this chapter, uh, he's going to say that ultimately Abraham's offspring are not plural, but singular. There, There is one, and that is Jesus Christ. He is the single one through whom all of God's blessings of salvation would come to Abraham, to Abraham's believing offspring and only his believing offspring and all of his believing offspring that is all of those who come to Jesus Christ Jew and Gentile from any nation on the face of the earth justified by faith alone so that uh, and and by the way all of this means so all of this is pointing to Jesus and it means that faith the kind of listen to me the kind of faith that saves is not a mere abstract faith in God like a belief in in God, God's existence, and even some truths about God. It is trust in God and God's promise, that promise that is centered on Jesus Christ, the ultimate seed of Abraham. Salvation only comes, listen to me, your, your soul depends on it, salvation only comes through faith, In God, as He has promised to save through His Son, Jesus Christ. Not on on the basis of your own good deeds, for they will never be good enough for God, but on the basis of your hope in Christ who was good enough and was the only one who was good enough. So the blessing of God would come in Abraham's seed, that is in Christ, and to Abraham's seed. That is, to all who believe, both Jew and Gentile. And he draws the conclusion in verse 9 explicitly. So then, he says, those who are of faith are blessed, along with Abraham, the man of faith. Even sinners, in other words. Even the Gentile sinners. Even the outsiders to the people of God even those who did not have God's law, could be justified by faith alone in Christ alone, along with Father Abraham. I want to conclude with uh, the words of Paul from, again, from Romans 4, where he brings out the implications of all of this, even in a more extended way. He says in chapter 4, now listen carefully, and I'll put the words on the screen as well, in chapter 4 of Romans he says now the words it was counted to him remember that those words again Paul's quoting here in Galatians as well from Genesis 15 God counted his faith to him as righteousness because his faith was looking to Christ the promise of God God he says or Paul says the words it was counted to him oh this is great they were written not for His sake alone, but for ours also. Listen to this. It will be counted to us who believe in Him, who raised from the dead Jesus Christ our Lord, who was delivered up to death for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Just like Abraham was declared righteous by God, God credited righteousness to him as a free gift on the basis of faith in God's promise, so God now will give you as a free gift the gift of His own righteousness, the righteousness of His Son, to any and all who believe, who trust in the crucified and resurrected Jesus, the Messiah. And what about you this morning? I want to ask you personally, listen to me, what about you? Is that where your heart is this morning? Are you looking to God's promise in Christ Jesus as the only ground that you have to stand before Him in His judgment and be vindicated and declared righteous? You Looking to God God alone, not to yourself, to your own works, to your own merit, to your own background, to your own upbringing, but to Christ and Christ alone. Do you know that you're a sinner? Do you know that you're full of trespasses? That you are morally poor? You have no way in and of yourself to merit the declaration by a holy God that you are righteous? No way. There is no hope in ourselves. But if you come to a place where you know that to be true, that in you there is no desert and merit before God, then I have good news for you. Look to Jesus Christ. Look to Christ and His righteousness, God's gift to you through the promise of Christ, and you will receive the blessing of justification before God. Look to Christ. That's what faith is. It is a looking to Christ. Not a doing, but a looking with faith. That's what Father Abraham was doing, right? standing there under the stars, looking to God with faith. Charles Spurgeon, the famous preacher many years ago, recounted his testimony of his coming to faith, his conversion. He said he had stopped by a small church one time on a snowy Sunday, and it was apparently such a snowstorm that even the pastor of the church had not been able to come, and so in his place, a simple Welsh layman gave the sermon that day. And the text was, Isaiah 45, look unto me and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth. That's got every element of what we're talking about. Look with faith, all of the nations of the earth and be saved. Spurgeon says the testimony this way. He says, the preacher did not even pronounce the words rightly. He was a simple man, but that did not matter. There was, I thought, a glimmer of hope in that text for me. The preacher thus began. It is a very simple text indeed. It says, look. Now, look and don't take a great deal of pain. It ain't lifting your foot or your finger, it's just look. Well, a man needn't go to college to learn to look. You may be the biggest fool, and yet you can look. A man needn't be worth a thousand a year to look. Anyone can look. Even a child can look. But then the text said, the preacher went on, Look unto me, I Many on ye are looking to yourselves. But it's no use looking there. You'll never find any comfort in yourselves. Look unto me. I am sweating great drops of blood. Look unto me. I am hanging on the cross. Look unto me. I am dead and buried. Look unto me. I rise again. Look unto me. I ascend to heaven. Look unto me. I am sitting at the Father's right hand. O oh, poor sinner, look unto me. Look unto me. And brothers and sisters, that's the Gospel. That is the foundation, the basis upon which any man and all men must be justified before God. It is looking in faith to Christ alone, to God's promise that you would be declared righteous before Him along with Father Abraham. Would you join me in prayer this morning? I'm going to lead us in a short prayer, and then I'm going to ask for you to take a time of personal reflection on the text of God's own Word that we read this morning. I want to tell you again, friend, this is God's Word for you today. It's no accident that you came. You heard this text today. God had this for you, and I hope that when He, that as He has spoken through it, that you have heard and will Him hear Him speaking to you, saying, "Look to Me, look to My Son, and be saved, receive His righteousness as a free gift." Heavenly Father. I now ask that you would take this word and cause it to bear fruit, the fruit of repentant faith in Christ. Saving faith, O Lord, let it be. Let it come down from your hand as gracious rains on a hot, dry, parched earth. Let your grace come down. Speak your word to the hearts of any today who are without Christ, who are outside of Christ. Father, they came into this room today self sufficient or feeling that they were self sufficient, thinking that they were good, hoping to be good enough in your sight. I pray today that you would give them the gift of faith to look to Christ alone and truly, truly be justified in your sight. I pray. Be gracious and merciful, for you are, your mercies are wonderful, they are from of old. We pray that you would manifest them now to the hearts of the unconverted and to the hearts of those who are your children, that we would look afresh with eyes of faith to Christ. In Jesus' name.